I read a few weeks ago that the most popular New Year's resolution for 2019 in the USA was, I want to be a better person. This New Year's resolution participates in the near to well universal human desire to live a flourishing life. If you walk into an Indigo's or a Chapters or some bookstore, um, besides the fiction, if you look at the nonfiction, probably the largest section of the entire bookstore would be the self-help section. We human beings desire, long for, yearn to live a flourishing life. A life of joy, a life of abundance, a life of happiness, um, a life that will enable us to deal with our past, wisdom to deal with our past, wisdom to deal with the future, wisdom to know how to deal with the vagaries, the realities of the present moment. We desire to live a flourishing life. But this just raises the question, sisters and brothers, because where can wisdom be found? How do we truly know how to live into the flourishing life? The brother of Jesus, James, invites us into a flourishing life. He, rooted in Israel's scriptures, rooted in the Christ event, believes that he has the wisdom to draw us into a life of deep abundance, deep flourishing, deep joy, even though we might be going through all sorts of different troubles. For 2021, as we launch into this new year, leaving 2020 behind, I thought it would be wonderful for us to explore the question about how do we indeed live into a more flourishing life in Christ. And there is really um, no better New Testament book that I'm aware of when it comes to finding wisdom for living a flourishing life than the book of James or the letter of James. And it's actually not really clear because scholars are confused about the genre of the book of James. I don't know, sisters and brothers, the last time that you read through the book of James, I encourage you to do that right now. Oh, well, not right now as you're watching the sermon, but of course, but after the message today, that you would actually read from beginning to end the whole book of James. What you will find, as many have found, is that it's very hard to pin down. It doesn't really lead, read like a typical New Testament letter. Um, James picks up one theme, and then he drops it, and he picks up another theme, and then he drops that one, and then he picks it up later again. He uses aphorisms, he uses proverbs, he uses exhortations. It's... Um, Paranetic, so that is to say that it teaches. So what exactly is James doing? Is it a letter? Well, a scholar by the name of Richard Bauckham has made the argument that I find compelling and agree with that James is a letter indeed. It's, you know, he writes it to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. It is a letter, but it's written in the form of the wisdom genre as you might find, for example, in Proverbs. Now, James does his own thing with it, but he here in the book or the letter of James wants to offer us fundamentally wisdom for living in light of the Christ event and in light of the revelation of God's word in scripture. And so as we enter into 2021, I think it's wonderful 
that we look at James and say, how can we, James, live the truly flourishing life? Show us how to live that flourishing life. And James is going to do that. We're going to look at the entire book of James, and we're going to do it in five weeks. The reason we can do this is because we're only going to read James chapter 1, divided into five sections. Okay, And the reason we can do that is because, as one has said, James chapter 1 is kind of, and in a very real way, a table of contents for the rest of the book of James. As we will see, James will pick up a theme. That theme will later be picked up, this first theme, in the remaining four chapters of the book of James, in chapters two through five. And then he'll pick up another theme about how to live the flourishing life. And then he'll pick that up in chapters two through five. So we're only gonna look at chapter one or read chapter one, but really we're going to kind of preach through the entire book of James. I invite you this morning, friends, to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. How do we live a truly flourishing life? What is James' wisdom for us? Beloved, lift up your hearts and listen to God's word on this first Sunday of the new year, 2021. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You want to live a flourishing life? Here is James' first piece of wisdom as we enter into 2021. Cherish your stubbed toes (laughs) and your broken ones too. Which is to say, if you want to live a flourishing life this year in Christ, then learn to embrace your suffering. And do it with joy. Listen again to how James puts this in his text as I try to unpack the Greek a little bit for us. The first two words in the Greek are this. All joy. (laughs) All joy. Consider it. And the consider it or think about it is in the imperative. It's a command. Consider It all joy when you face sufferings of many kinds. And when he says sufferings, it's, of course, in the translation here, it's trials. Consider pure joy, my sisters and brothers, when you face trials, the word can be translated, temptations, when you face trials or temptations, which is to say sufferings, because that in Scripture is what trials and temptations are. They amount to our suffering of many kinds. Are you going through relational suffering? All joy. Physical suffering? All joy. Psychological suffering? All joy. Spiritual suffering? All joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials, temptations, sufferings of many kinds. Because 
The testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. All joy. The question is, is James a masochist? Does he delight in suffering and want us to delight in suffering too? And even to go so far as to seek it out. Because if suffering is all joy, then why wouldn't we seek suffering out, right? Well, no. Absolutely not. Look at how James puts it once again. Consider it pure joy, my sisters and brothers, when you face when you are faced with, when you are confronted by, when the hammer of trials, temptations, and sufferings fall down into the warp and woof of your ordinary life. James, as with the rest of Scripture, will never encourage the Christian to go and seek out suffering or some kind of martyrdom. Instead, James says that when you are faced with suffering, When the hammer of suffering falls on you, that's when you are to consider it all joy. And why consider it all a joy? Well, it's because, as he says, suffering produces perseverance or endurance or long-suffering. And patience or perseverance will make you mature and complete, not lacking anything. In a nutshell, beloved, the reason that we can consider our suffering in Christ as Christians, the reason we can consider our suffering pure joy is because under the sovereignty of God, suffering will perfect us, make us more like Jesus, make us more in the image of God, endow us with the characteristics that God himself possesses. Increase the degree to which the fruit of the Spirit is operating in our lives. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The sovereign God will use suffering or the crucible of suffering to perfect us. In other words, to bring us to the truest and deepest depths of human flourishing, which is to be like Christ himself, to be restored in the functioning as the image bearers of God that we were always to function as in the beginning, which is to say, to be light bearers of God's own person, God's own truth, and God's own character. This is why we can consider our suffering a joy, because of what it produces in us, what it cultivates in us, what it does for us. I think it's really helpful at this point to make a distinction that a scholar by the name of Robbie Roberts makes in a book he writes called Spiritual Emotions. Roberts says this about the spiritual emotion of joy. He says, all joy in scripture and in human experience must be defined as a pleasure. Joy is, in its most fundamental bedrock sense, a pleasure. But 
what we have to understand is that both in Scripture as well as in human experience, there's two different kinds of joys or joyous pleasures that a human being can have. You can have, on the one hand, the joy of the senses, the pleasure of the senses, of what you see, of what you smell, of what you taste, of what you touch, of the appetites and being satisfied. That's the joy of the senses or the pleasure of the senses. But then on the other hand, Roberts points out, there is another type of joy, which can be coupled with the joy of the senses, but doesn't necessarily need to be. And that is the joy of meaning or the pleasure of meaning. And here's an example of this that I find helpful personally. Um, You can experience the joy of the senses or the pleasure of the senses if you pick up a nice glass of wine at 7 p.m. and drink it. And if um, we're referring to the previous Christmas season, then for me, uh, my top wine of the season would have been the Mayomi Pinot Noir 2019. It was absolutely delicious wine. Brings joy to the mouth, brings joy to the olfactory. It's got an incredible bouquet, gorgeous aromas, joy to the appetites. It's the joy of the senses, the pleasure of the senses on full display. But then, now imagine this. Imagine that I'm drinking this uh, Mayomi 2019 Pinot Noir. I'm drinking it on my 70th birthday with my children and my grandchildren around me. And I am told that actually it's not a Pinot Noir Mayomi 2019, but instead it's a Pinot Noir Mayomi 1975. And that what I am actually drinking was vented in the year of my birth. And you see what happens then. The joy of the senses or the pleasure of the senses is now completed, elevated, fulfilled, lifted up even higher by layers and layers of the joy of meaning because I'm surrounded by my loved ones. I'm told that it's vented in the year of my birth and I'm drinking on my 70th birthday. Now the joy of meaning and the joy of the senses have come together. But the reality in our lives is that the joy of meaning and the joy of our senses do not always come together. And you can experience the joy of meaning without experiencing the joy of the senses or the joy of the appetites. So for example, if that wine was, I was 70 years old and it was vented in 1975, in all likelihood, a 70-year-old wine is going to be as sour as the vinegar, the apple vinegar in your closet, because that's usually what happens to wine after that amount of time. So I wouldn't be experiencing the joy of the senses drinking a 1975 wine, but I certainly would nonetheless experience the joy of meaning, surrounded by the family that loved me. This very meaningful gift of a wine that was vented in my birth, even if it tastes like sour grapes. We can have the joy of meaning without having the joy of the senses. And the joy that James is on about in our text, friends, is this joy of meaning. That we can consider our trials and temptations, our sufferings as all joy because of what they are producing in us. They're producing the life and the character of God himself. They're purifying us and refining us. The image in our text is 
kind of like, I don't know if you guys have seen um, Iron Man, the Iron Man videos. I have a bit of a soft spot for these videos um, and the Avengers that kind of complete them. And if you've watched the Iron Man series from the beginning, you'll see that there's been a developmental progress with Iron Man. And as he goes through adversity, as he struggles, as he faces greater struggles, greater villains, he's made stronger. His weapons become better. His defenses become better. In fact, what you see is the perfection of the Iron Man. He, through the series, becomes perfected till in the last two videos, um, the ones called Infinity War and the other one's Endgame, by Endgame, Iron Man becomes a figure of Christ as he lays down his life so that others might live. But he only gets there as he faces adversity, as he goes through various forms of trials, temptations, and suffering. And this is what James is on about in our text. Suffering can be thought of as all joy, as a pathway to the flourishing life when we understand, when we know that it is producing in us the image of God itself. It's growing us up in Christ. Think about COVID-19. I don't know how you have been feeling throughout the duration of this, well, trial that we've been in, but if I'm honest with myself, um, it's been really hard at times, and I've been pretty grumpy at times that we're going through this. James tells me that the question I should be asking, however, is what might the Lord be trying to accomplish in me through the trial of COVID-19? Has God been doing his work in the midst of this suffering? And if I can focus on the work that God is doing in me, in and through this suffering, I can experience that joy of meaning, even though I am not experiencing that joy of the senses. And the reality is, I think about it, and perhaps you can have this in your own life too, is the sovereign God does work his graces in us through these periods of suffering. You know, if I take kind of a tally of myself and say, have I become more patient? Check. More enduring? Check. More desirous of the future that God holds for each one of us and therefore less attached to the world in its present form? Check. More compassionate to the sufferings of others? Check. Less worldly? Check. You know, how about you? COVID-19, something struck me the other day that we individuals, Christians in this church, of course, none of you are sitting here right now, but all of us individuals in this church have been given a gift through COVID-19. And you know what it is? And I hope that we're receiving this gift. The gift is this. For the first time in many of our lives, we are being forced by COVID-19 to take responsibility for our faith, for our growth in Christ in a way that we never have before. Often we can rely on the structures that are in place, that are effective. In particular, I'm thinking about Sunday mornings. We come here we're shoulder to shoulder, we sing together, we can encourage one another, we can listen to the word together, 
We can fellowship afterward together. We have this rhythm, this seven-day rhythm of coming together. Being together communicates stuff to us that not being together just simply cannot communicate. But for the last eight months, nine months, we have been at home. And for many of us, the reality I know very well is that we're sick and tired of doing it like this online. Um, We're distracted when we're sitting on our couches at home. Many of us have, in fact, become quite adroit in the art of skipping out of Sunday morning worship. Many, in fact, I know, have not watched, have not tuned into services for a very long time. It's just not working for us. What's going on in this trial? What's going on for you? Maybe, just maybe, God is giving you the opportunity to fight for your faith, for your own faith, for the first time in your life. He's growing in you a character of gumption, of deeper faith, questioning, is this really mine? Are we doing our devotions more? Are we taking the initiative to catechize our children more? God is giving us the gift of needing to take responsibility for our own faith during COVID-19. The suffering, the trial, in that degree, has been a gift. To the degree that we can see that meaning in it, such is it a gift, even though we miss the comforts of being together and all the joy of the senses that come in singing together and the music online isn't the same and all this kind of thing. But the joy of meaning can be there, friends. I think the reality for us Christians is that unless God allows, and I'm saying us Christians in 21st century North America, the reality is that unless God allows us to suffer, draws us into a crucible of suffering, gives us trials in our lives, gives us temptations, that we will not grow up into the fullness of Christ. We won't. You know why? Because we're too comfortable. We are too lazy. We are too complacent. We are too indifferent. We have far too many comforts all around us at all time at the tip of our fingers. We can buy anything anytime we want. I can get that nice Miami wine if I want it. Unless the Lord God in his loving sovereignty and grace draws us into the crucible of suffering, we might start to think that this world is all there is for us and just want to park down, set up stage here, even though we still have to look forward to the consummation. I have come to increasingly believe that unless God allows us to suffer, we will not grow up in the fruit of the Spirit. We will not become substantially more Christ-like. So maybe if we are suffering, it really and truly is a gift because God is leading us into the bedrock, the deepest portion of human of flourishing that there possibly can be for a human, which is to become more truly human than we were before. It is actually axiomatic, not only of the spiritual life, I think, but of the physical life, isn't it? Of the bodily life. The reality that we grow up, we are made stronger, we are built up by suffering, is built into the human body itself and actually into the world of sports. What's the slogan in sports, right? Inscribed on the front of people's shirts. No pain, No game. We all know it. I was utterly fascinated listening to a documentary a couple of weeks ago about a man called Wim Hof, a.k.a. the Iceman. Wim Hof is 
a true human figure. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records. He has held several records for doing unbelievable things. For example, Wim holds the record for the longest time swimming under ice. This was sub-zero ice temperatures, over 50 meters. He actually, the first time he tried this, went blind because his cornea started to freeze. He was saved by one of the scuba divers. He has a record for a half marathon while running barefoot on ice and snow, for summiting Mount Kilimanjaro wearing only shorts and shoes, for running a full marathon in the Namib Desert without water, not a drop of water, and perhaps most amazingly, he held the Guinness record for the longest time submerged in a giant tank filled with ice water. The ice was pressing up all against his body. He was in there for one hour, 53 minutes and two seconds while maintaining a warm body temperature. Scientists didn't have a clue how he had done it. When you ask Wim Hof, how did he get to this place? One of the things that he will tell you is he has systematically, incrementally surrendered himself, subjected himself to suffering, to bodily stressors to things that hurt. And when he was able to survive in the ice for 10 seconds, then it became 20, then it became 30, then it became 40, then it became an hour and 55 minutes. It's axiomatic that suffering can produce our strength and our growth, even bodily. Ask Nicholas Nassim Talib in his book, Anti-Fragile, Talib demonstrates that the way to become anti-fragile, which is to say not only unbreakable, but that when you are broken, you're stronger than you were before, the way to do this is to actually sub surrender yourself or subject yourself once again to being broken in various ways. The human bones, Talib shares when they're put under sufficient stress and they have these little micro-fractures in them, they grow back stronger than they were before. It's how you overcome your shin splints. When you go to the gym and you lift heavy weights, you actually tear your muscle fiber a little bit, then you heal it, and then it grows bigger, and you grow stronger. It's how it works with the human body. I had my single best swim meet in a six-year competitive swimming career, um, back in the early 1990s when I was swimming for the Hayek Swim Club. We had, during the month of December, when we were on our two-week break, we had what we called Christmas camp. And it was basically two weeks of complete torture. And it wasn't only that we were swimming Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday afternoon, and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday mornings, so we only had Sunday off. That wasn't the worst of it. On this one particular year in the early 90s, our coach decided that he was really going to train us good. And so what he did is he forced us to wear t-shirts while we swam. It was positively horrendous. It was painful. My form was completely off because it was stuck by the t-shirt here and you had to work. My shoulders became sore because I had to push through the t-shirt in order to do it. The whole Christmas camp was horrendous, painful. But I had my best swim meet ever because the day before the meet, coach said, you could take off your t-shirts. All of us felt like seals in the water 
and we smashed our previous records the day after when we engaged in the swim meet. Because all of the adversity, all of the struggle made us that much stronger. What is true of life in general, friends, of the body, of sports, no pain, no gain, is true in the spiritual life. And by the way, it's not only James who thinks this. Paul, in Romans 5 and 3, says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because suffering produces perseverance. Notice the same theme here. Perseverance produces character and character hope. Peter believes it. In 2 Peter 1, 4 and following, Peter says that since our faith is leading us to escape the corruption of this world, we should add to our faith, goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, that is, enduring under struggle, godliness. The author of the book of Hebrews somewhat astoundingly says in chapter 5, verse 8, that, quote, although Jesus was a son, the son of God, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus himself needed to undergo trial, temptation, suffering in order to be made perfect, to be made whole and complete. And we're not talking about moral perfection here. Of course, Jesus was morally per perfect from the beginning. But as Luke says, he grew up in wisdom and stature. Jesus was fully and truly human just as we are and therefore was subjected to a growth that came only about through suffering. So, you want to live a flourishing life, friends? Then learn to cherish your stubbed toes and your broken ones too. Learn to embrace your suffering and to do so with joy. The joy of meaning because of what suffering is producing in you. That the Father will produce in you through suffering because he loves you the character of Christ himself. Suffering can perfect you, refine you, purify you, make you mature and complete, not lacking anything. Indeed, it will take our whole lives, but this is what God is doing with us as we are being chiseled away by our suffering. Let me drill this all home today in conclusion. Beloved, we need to make a mental leap if we are to really get under what James is saying here and embrace the life of flourishing that he's calling us to. We need to make a mental leap. This one. Flourishing, for those of us living in the 21st century in Vancouver, is usually envisioned as a life that is devoid of struggle, where we have lots of money, great relationships, a great sex life, freedom to go out to dinner, great physical health, romance, probably lots of natural beauty, popularity, youthfulness, a nice house, healthy kids, a good reputation, and generally just freedom from all forms of restraint. This is why when suffering does hit us and trials and temptations of many kinds come our way, we recoil, get angry, get depressed because we feel like we are being robbed of the flourishing life that we are entitled to, defined as we define it. But we need to make a mental leap. This one, 
flourishing in God's imagination might include the things I just mentioned and many of the things I just mentioned and ultimately probably does include most of those things I just mentioned. But the leap is this. The depth of human flourishing, the bedrock of human flourishing is not rooted in those things nor does it spring from those things. Rather, the depth of human flourishing, friends, is rooted in and springs out of our being fully human again, like Jesus, endowed with the same character virtues and spiritual virtues of God himself. This is God's measure of flourishing. And thus, the leap we need to make when suffering does hit us is not to ask, how do I feel right now? Although lament in the Christian life is very important, I'm not saying that. And we're not to ask, what am I missing out on? Although that's important too. But foundationally, we must learn to ask this question. What is God producing in me right now by this suffering? Can I identify it? Can I see that I'm being made more like Christ? And therefore, I can rejoice because I am being made now what I will be then fully. And I'm becoming more useful to God in the here and now as well. The groundwork for my flourishing is being made. You know, perhaps we say to ourselves, I had really wanted a sweet marriage filled with romance and lots of laughs, but the reality is that my spouse has become so difficult, has distanced himself from me, and whose words, first words are usually, don't even ask, bucko. It hurts. But look, to flourish and flourish even there Lament, to be sure, as we have just said, but then also do this. Embrace your suffering. Embrace it by seeking the meaning within it. The Christian meaning, what is God doing in me here? What might God be producing in me here? Compassion for others in similar situations, check. An opportunity to love the unlikable, check. The opportunity to grow up more and face my own ugliness, the part that I am playing in the dissolution of this relationship, check. The opportunity to show true covenant love, to stick it out, even though I don't feel like sticking around, but doing it as a testament to the fact that God's covenant love for me and for all of us itself is unconditional and that marriage is to mimic this. Check the hope of heaven when marriages like these will be no more. Check other fruit of the Spirit. Check, check, check. And when we do that, there can be joy. Not the joy of the senses, to be sure, but the deeper joy of meaning. In the book that several of us in this church studied and discussed together throughout December, Rod Dreher's book, Live Not by Lies, Dreher comments on the posture and words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn after suffering unjustly and being left to rot away in the Soviet prisons for years and years and years. Quote, In his masterwork, The Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn reveals how he and his fellow inmates were beaten, humiliated, deprived of liberty, made to live in filth and freezing temperatures and crawling with lice, and to endure other, many other grotesque manifestations of communism's determination to create heaven on earth. That's why nothing in that epochal book's pages shocks more than these lines. Quote, this is Solzhenitsyn speaking now. And that is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say, sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, bless you, prison. Bless you, prison, for having been in my life. And then Dreher comments, 
Solzhenitsyn's audacious claim was that suffering had refined him, taught him to love. It was only there, out of the experience of intense suffering, that the prisoner began to understand the meaning of life and first began to sense the good inside himself. I do not know what you are suffering right now. I mean, I know what some of you are suffering, but not all of you. But I have the same question for each one of us this morning. In the place where you are suffering, Christian, in the place where you most hurt, most long for things to be changed, and are being made most to long for the future of God because of it, in that place, what is God doing? What is the God who loves you and wants nothing less for you than to become like Christ himself, endowed with God's very own character? What might he be producing? Can you identify it? Name it. Work to name it. For there sleeps a joy of meaning that can be awakened and is waiting to be awakened. And you can bank on this. For as Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 3, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the, until the day of Christ Jesus. We may give up on our growth. We may give up on our maturity in Christ, but God won't. He is even more committed to our deepest flourishing than we are. I end with a poem written by Hilda Staub, the late Calvin Seminary professor Henry Staub's wife. The poem was published in the Reformed Journal in 1974. It's entitled, The Pebble. I picked up a pebble from the beach today and looked at it in my hand. It felt so hard and satiny smooth, worn by the grist of the sand. How many years of wind and wave did it take to make it this way? How many years and tons of sand have covered it till today? And so, dear friend, God does to us year after year after year, hurting us, shaping us, always for good, lovely at last to appear. Beloved, James' first word of wisdom for flourishing in 2021, cherish your stub toes and your broken ones too. Learn to embrace your suffering and do it with joy, knowing the meaning that might and does because of the sovereignty of God exist within it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Lord God, whenever we take up a topic like this one, where people really are suffering, where they are shaking, as we sometimes do, our fists at heaven saying, why, Lord, why? When we feel as bereft as Job did because of the way that you have stripped us down and stripped us back of our former abilities, of our former loves, of presences in our lives that now, not being present, leave an absence that is indescribable. Only you, Holy Spirit, can enable us to experience joy in these times, surely not the joy of the senses or the joy of the appetite, that sort of pleasure, but the joy of meaning. Help us to see what you are doing in us. Help us to love what you are doing in us. And Father, give us 
an incredible amount of peace, a peace that passes understanding because we have the deep, settled confidence that you are in control of our lives and that you love us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, and that you have never abandoned us. Give us this deep security, Lord. I pray for those who are listening today for whom this message is particularly difficult. Would you be their comfort, be their solace, be their ointment, Lord, that brings comfort? Because suffering can burn in ways that only we know about. But Lord, you know, and I just pray that you would help us to know that you know, that your tears fall on our tears where we weep, you weep with us, even though you say, I am making something new and I am making it out of the ashes of your life. Help us to have this confidence, to know it, Lord, to embrace it for the scriptural teaching that it is. We do not long for suffering. We don't look for it. We don't want it. We long for the day when it will be completely alleviated. And we know that our job now, Lord, as your priests in this world is to alleviate it where we find it, where we are able and where it is wise. But when we can't change it, help us to trust in you and to find that joy of meaning we've been talking about. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.